Welcome to the March of History. I'm your host, Trevor Furness. And co-host here, Brendan Furness. And we are excited today to be launching episode 20 of the podcast of the March of History. This is a, a milestone for us. Somewhere I read that the vast majority of podcasts, I don't know what the percentage is, never make it to 20 episodes. And I was going to cite that statistic for this episode, but when I went to Google to fact check myself, for the life of me, as much as I searched, I could not find the stat. <laughs> so maybe I completely made it up, but I don't think so. I'm, I'm almost certain I read that somewhere. So we're, we're going to celebrate regardless that this is the 20th episode milestone for the March of History. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal, even if it's not you know, the threshold for a successful podcast, it's at the very least a fifth of a hundred episodes. So definitely still a big milestone. It is. It is. It's a big milestone. And I did read that 12% of podcasts never make it past episode two. So wow. <laughs> I think episode yeah, 20 no, it's is It's like starting a business. Yeah. Most, you know, fail just in the planning stages. Yeah. Yeah. And we're definitely in this thing for the long term. Or the long haul. So we're excited to be moving on and getting back to giving you episodes each week. One more thing before we get started with the history is I'm actually headed to Cordoba or Cordoba, I think is how they say it, Spain this weekend for typically they have this patio festival where they put flowers in all of the old Islamic patios in, in the houses throughout the city and people tour them. And typically that's in May, but due to Corona, it's been moved to this weekend, uh, this weekend being because it's going to be a week behind you guys. It is October 8th as of the recording of this audio. So the weekend of the 9th, I'll have been in Cordoba by the time you hear this. So hopefully you'll have enjoyed the content I post on the Instagram and the Facebook and the Twitter pages we have. The Mesquita is an incredible, beautiful mosque, and the Alcazar there is incredible. I've been to both. So I would say expect great pictures and great content, but by the time you hear this, it would have already happened. So hopefully it was good and you enjoyed it. Like I said, part of being here in Spain is being able to show you as much history as possible on the social media channels and, and incorporating it into the podcast. Now, getting back to the history and to Caesar and his consulship, Brendan wasn't here last episode. As you know, his laptop broke, but he's still working on getting that fixed. But he, what, Brendan, you borrowed mom's in the meantime? No, no, it's actually fixed now. Believe it it's or not, I, I went to the, I'm using it right now as we speak. So I oh, went to okay. the Apple store uh, yesterday and it turns out it was never even, there was never even an issue. It fixed itself. So when I got into the, it went into the meeting with the guy. He opened it up, powered it on, and it was fine. So, gotta love that. It sounds uh, like a waste of time, but that's the best uh, I could have hoped for. Yeah, it's it's like when you go to the mechanic because your car is making a sound, and you show the mechanic, and your car stops making the sound. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd rather that than it. You know, there'd be some issues. So, so yeah, I'm yeah. good to go. All right. Well, let's get started before we lose our entire audience by not talking history in the first few minutes. Uh, so to recap last episode, we left off in episode 19 with Caesar passing the land bill despite extremely stubborn opposition from a, a powerful minority of senators, namely the Optimates, led by Cato and Caesar's co-consul Bibulus. And after having a bucket of poop dumped over Bibulus's head, Bibulus decided to hide in his house for the rest of the year and send Caesar messages about bad omens throughout the year so that he wasn't able to hold any meetings technically, legally, throughout the year and, and pass any legislation. And by doing this, he made Caesar look like a tyrant because Caesar's essentially the sole consul and nobody else is participating or another consul is not participating, meaning Bibulus, because he's hiding in his house. And he casts a shadow of illegality over Caesar's entire consulship and makes it all look legally questionable if the other consul essentially vetoed everything that he did with saying that, hey, there's bad omens, we're not allowed to proceed. So that's kind of the optimate stance towards his consulship at this point. And they're priming a trap. They're priming a trap so that when Caesar steps down from this consulship, becomes a private citizen again, they can say that everything that he did was illegal. Because yes, it's okay to bring 
bills directly before the people. The Senate hates it, but it is legal to do that. So they needed they needed a way for his actions to not just be distasteful to them, but they needed to turn his actions into illegal actions, which they've now done. I was just wondering, to what extent was Bibulus's producing these omens as propaganda or whatever you want to call it, or maybe back then it wouldn't have really been propaganda, but something to be taken seriously. Uh, I wonder to what extent did people buy into this or was it kind of like a known thing that really he's just creating a, a beacon for the opt-in party to follow and, you know, kind of consolidate and, you know, work towards the same goal of creating a, an illegitimate consulship of Caesar or if, um, or did they actually believe this stuff themselves? It's I a mean, good we'll question. Yeah. And the omens were taken seriously, as we can see from the example of Claudius's ancestor, also named Claudius, who threw the sacred chickens overboard, lost the battle, and then was prosecuted for sacrilege. Omens were taken seriously in the Roman world. However, they were never intended to be used this way. And even by Caesar's time, they're seen as kind of an old-fashioned thing, going back to their ancient past, that Maybe we don't so much buy into those kind of omen things as we used to, but they still need to be respected because they're part of the fabric that makes it the Republic, and the Romans are very traditional. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm sure it's something more, somewhere between, like, say, Groundhog Day today, and obviously, you know, no one believes that, but we still celebrate it, just kind of, and even probably when it was invented, I don't know if anyone ever believed that. And, like, say, uh, I don't know, the... uh, something old like say the constitution we we revere that and take that seriously so yeah i mean yeah. i would definitely say they took it more seriously than, than groundhog day but, <laughs> but yeah no that's like the type of stuff they would see a bird do something we see a groundhog do something and yeah i mean that's true nothing about the weather so it's yeah that's, that's basically what they're doing yeah but i guess the other part of your question was how do they see it at the time it seems to me that the vast majority of people saw it as just obstructionist behavior and didn't believe that bibulus was seeing any omens because never in Rome's history had one consul seen bad omens every single day of the year, and suddenly Bibulus does. It just doesn't make any sense. How, like Once you start saying you see that many bad omens, then you lose credibility in your omen predictions, right? Plus, these things had gravity when the consul came in in person and announced what he had seen. Bibulus wouldn't leave his house. He would just send messengers and send letters to the Senate, which they all thought was ridiculous. And that one, con- that one tribune who was an associate of Caesar's, even led a gang to or a, a mob to Bibulus's house to demand that he come out of his house and present his omens in person. Bibulus refused. <laughs> yeah, that's the part I don't get. I mean, if you're going to take the strategy of, you know, just posting up and sending out this propaganda, why not do it in the forum where you're going to have a lot more credibility? I mean, he must have, I, I get the feeling from Bibulus that he must have been like, actually like, like kind of scared of facing i don't know caesar in particular but just showing uh his face in the senate and just in general i mean to to shut yourself up in your house for you know your whole year-long term as consul it just seems like he was kind of had a lot of fear in him yeah and maybe he was suffering from depression after being mortified so publicly like that who knows yeah. it's not like they acknowledged depression back in those times but yeah, we we could do an entire episode speculating on Bibulus's motives, but we do have a lot more in Caesar's consulship, and I don't want to draw out his consulship any more than we, we already have, but I, I do think it's good content. So getting back to the story, Caesar had passed Pompey's land bill, but that's just the first item on the list, and he's pissed off the optimists to no end by doing it. And for any other senator, this would be a a landmark bill, and they would have spent their entire year getting this bill done, and it would have been the achievement of an entire career. But not Caesar. Like I said, Caesar is just getting started. This is just the very base of what he's going to do. Remember, the triumvirate was formed based on all three members getting everything they want. Pompey hasn't even gotten everything he wants yet, so there's still a lot of work to be done. And in rapid succession, Caesar hits Rome with more laws of excellent quality than the Optimates knew what to do with. I mean, seriously, the Optimates' heads must have been spinning how quickly he hit them with law after law. And every single, or not every single, but the vast majority of these laws that he's putting out 
are extremely controversial laws and topics. I mean, the laws themselves are very reasonable because Caesar's put a ton of work into them, but the topic itself is the kind of thing that never gets changed in Rome because nobody can get any laws passed. And Caesar's hitting on all of those types of issues. And some of them are even resolving issues that have plagued the Republic for generations. And like I said, the, the solutions Caesar provides to these issues are, in my opinion, object, objectively well thought out and effective. And even contemporaries that weren't always fans of Caesar say this as well, such as Cicero. So, Brendan, if you're if you're cool with it, we're going to go through some of the laws that he passed and who he passed them for and which member of the triumvirate it helps. Does that work for you? I'm ready. All right. So first up, Pompey. So Pompey seems to have been the guy that was most reticent about the triumvirate and most likely to break away because Caesar and Crassus had a long-term relationship. They had been friends or colleagues for many, many years and, and Crassus had supported Caesar's career so those two knew that they weren't going to switch sides on each other. Pompey was a notorious turncoat. <laughs> Pompey, nobody could really read him, and he would switch on a dime whose side he was on, depending on who he thought benefited him the most. So I think they wanted to make Pompey happy right away, which I don't know, maybe that could have backfired if he got what he wanted and then backed out. But anyway, they Caesar then proposes to ratify all of Pompey's settlements of the East and all of his decisions in the East at a single stroke. Remember, the Optimates wanted to go through decision by decision and piecemeal decide which one of Pompey's decisions to keep and which ones to throw out. And Pompey didn't want that. He wanted this all to be approved in one single stroke. Caesar manages through his skilled legislation to pass exactly what Pompey wants. He gets all the settlements, all the decisions, all the client kingdoms, all of the new provinces and all the administrations and all the tax systems approved at a single stroke. Pompey doesn't have to worry about any of that now. And by all accounts, Pompey did an excellent job in the East because he is a great administrator. And he did an excellent job setting up the provinces, setting up his client kingdoms, and all of these decisions he made were great for Rome. So ratifying it like this, rather than letting the optimates be petty and pick through it and decide, well, we don't want to let him have this power because that makes him too powerful, even if it's the right decision, is probably good for Rome for them not to be doing that and to just ratify the good things Pompey did. So now this is just a blanket. We're saying any, basically anything that Pompey did over in the East. It's now approved and made into official law. Yeah, I think if there was anything particularly odious that he had done in the East, he would have been prosecuted for it already. It was more, okay, he made this random Armenian noble into a king. I'm just making something up. I don't know if that's what he did. But he did make many client kings. Does the Senate approve of him being king? Maybe we want somebody else as king. And so Pompey was in the area, knew the politics of the area, and would have picked somebody who's going to be there long-term and support Rome's interests and do good work. Well, the optimist, just for spite, may say, we don't want Pompey to be able to pick that, so we're just going to pick somebody at random, and that could destabilize the region. So I think it is good to let Pompey make those decisions. Yeah, no, I feel like with anything in general, it's always better to have the person that's been dealing with it every day for you know, a long period of time has experienced that area. Doesn't even matter. I mean, in this case, Pompey is super talented, but even if he was less talented than say some of the lawmakers in the in the Senate, if they're not there every day, then they're not going to know what's going on. So it's going to be tough for them to make a, a, de- a decision like that. But yeah. at the same time, it is good at times to have accountability, even if they aren't experts in the area, but just to make sure there's not no like egregious, uh, mistakes being made. I absolutely agree. And if the Roman Senate and particularly Cato and the Optimates were calm, reasoned individuals that were looking for things that were glaring issues that they wanted to resolve, I would be all for it. But as we've seen from all these stories about how they behave with Pompey and Crassus and Caesar, we've seen that most of their motivation is through petty jealousy and spite and rivalries and vendettas, I don't think that that's going to help the East, the Eastern provinces. Now, I do get their point in that 
not one man should have so much power in the Republic and setting that precedent by giving Pompeo that power might not be good long-term. I see what they're saying there, but either way, Pompey gets what he wants. He gets everything ratified. And now Pompey has all of the laws passed that he wanted passed. He's all set. And so now he just has to support the other two. And now it's Crassus' turn. And then for Crassus, Caesar gets passed a law that cuts down the bill owed by the tax collectors in the East by one third. So remember, Crassus wanted to bail out the Publicani, the tax collectors who had overbid in the East for a contract. And it was very unpopular. Well, Caesar's able to force through a law that cuts down the bill that they owe to Rome by one third. And of course, bailing out tax collectors is never going to be seen as a popular or great thing for Rome. But I do think in in this case, it was a reasonable solution. He's not letting them off scot-free. He's not saying you guys don't have to pay a dime and go back to rebid. He's saying you still have to pay a good chunk of what you said you would pay. And what they said that they would pay was ludicrous. So they're still going to pay a good amount of money to Rome. And Rome's not really bailing them out here. It's not as if Rome's coming up with its own coffers of money to give to these companies to keep them liquid. It's just saying you don't have to pay us this ridiculous sum you claimed you're going to pay us. Yeah, to me, and I don't know if this is true at all, but I get the sense that, or at least I wonder, like, if Crassus was the one in the first place who got these these um, the tax collectors to bid so high, and then now he's he's doing them a political favor by getting it down to one third or or reducing it by one third. I wonder if it was him in the first place with his greed getting them to bid so high, and he couldn't get that, and then so to recoup his losses or to get a gain some other way politically. Now he's reducing that for them, even though maybe, you know, I, don't know, I could be wrong here. I don't know how, how responsible he was for them bidding so high, but that'd be interesting if, as a political move, it'd be pretty uh, clever on his part. Yeah, I think that he had a heavier hand in influencing the tax collectors and the Pupacani than any senator was legally allowed to. So it could yeah. be a fair bet what you just said. And Caesar also formally warns the Publicani not to overbid again in the future. So he lets them off a little bit, but tells them, don't pull this crap again. And yes, this may have been unpopular with many people, and for obvious reasons, it doesn't look that good. But here's the thing. If Caesar hadn't done that, then the tax collectors go to the east and just try to squeeze as much money out of poor peasants as they possibly can people who have just survived a decade, maybe decades of warfare. And that's not good for the entire Eastern settlements of Rome. So Caesar letting them off may sound bad, but who would have paid the price in the end had he not let them off? It would have been the general masses of the the Eastern provinces. Now, similar to what you were saying about Crassus maybe having a hand in these companies, these tax companies, Cicero would later allege that Caesar gave his agents the different people that helped him throughout his consulship shares in these same companies as payment. So that's pretty sketchy there, right? He is the consul who puts forward this law to, to give them a one third break on this tax bill. And yes, Crassus is the one that really wants it, but Caesar's the consul that puts it forward. Cicero alleges, we don't know for sure that Caesar had essentially shares in these companies. Maybe he bought them from Crassus. And then by letting these guys off the hook, I'm sure the shares became more valuable. And then he gifted them to different agents that he, that he used. So it's definitely self-dealing in government if that's what happened. We don't know. This is just what Cicero said. And Cicero was known to not let the truth stand in the way of a good rumor. So I don't think we should put that much stock behind it, but it is interesting. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, and, and that's you know kind of like I mean, basically the exact same as insider trading today, but I know a lot of stuff like that, like insider trading, stuff that we see as definitively bad today, back then might not have even been considered. I mean, it, it would have been obvious what he was doing if you knew that he was doing that. And you would, if you're his enemy, you try to stop him. But, you know, it may not have even necessarily been something that's like distinctly illegal. Like yeah, well, I think it was illegal for senators to hold, it was. Okay. To hold any kind of stock in these kind of companies for these exact reasons. 
that or any kind of merchant. Uh, yeah, they all did it though. They just do it through them. Sh- shady ways or shadowy ways. And so that's all Crassus wanted. It always strikes me that you would think Crassus, I mean, Pompey got land for his veterans. He got his entire Eastern command ratified. And Crassus just wants the tax collectors bailed out. It always struck me that like, Crassus, you didn't want to ask for more. Wasn't there anything else you wanted? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, of all people, you would think, and this is like a, I mean, like basically just a land grab. They can get whatever they want as long as they just go after it with the triumvirate. So, yeah, I wonder if there was something else to it. But well, granted, Crassus is on the commission that's divvying up the land for the redistribution to the veterans, and you better believe Crassus has sticky fingers in that cookie jar. <laughs> so I'm sure uh, he's so making he's, money he's, different ways. So he's doing, yeah, maybe possibly a literal land grab there. Yeah, yeah. And so Crassus, he's satisfied. He has everything he wants now. Now it's Caesar's turn. And as you would expect, Caesar is a man who knows exactly what he wants. There's no waffling back and forth for him. Now, there's a lot of confusion on which laws are passed when, and a lot of the primary sources just kind of present them in this mass and say, oh, here's what he did throughout his year, and they don't really give an order of it. So I'm just going to kind of give a a general sense of, of what was passed and the exact order throughout the year is not always known. But he passes a new law regulating the behavior of provincial governors. You remember, this was a big issue in Rome. Caesar was constantly trying to prosecute greedy governors that had fleeced the people of their provinces in order to pay back all the debts they had taken on to run for office. And usually these guys always got off. And even somebody with Caesar's eloquence was not able to get a conviction and to prosecute them. And it was just it was a systemic issue of Rome that these governors would borrow tons of money, and the only way out of that was to then steal money from the people in the provinces and pay off your debts. Caesar now passes a law to, to attempt to fix that, and laws had been passed in the past, I believe, to try to fix that, but none had really found a way to address the problem. But Caesar does it in a fantastic fashion, and I don't know the details of the bill. I'm not even sure if they're still saved by time. But even Cicero describes it as an excellent law, and it's so well written that it actually remains in place for centuries after Caesar's death. So for centuries into the empire, this remains a law for governors of provinces to keep them in check and to stop them from stealing from the local provincials. And I think this is is, it's very consistent with what we've seen Caesar do throughout his life, looking out for the people, protecting those in the provinces and protecting those that don't have much of a voice and, and are oppressed. And and this is, you know, Caesar has a chance in the triumvirate to just be greedy and get everything that he wants. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to help the people of the provinces. Now, a cynic would say that by doing that, he's gaining tons of clients out in the provinces, and now they all owe something to Caesar. And so he's gaining power. And maybe that's the case, but maybe he's also looking to help the people. Or more likely, it's probably a mix of both. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it, it's much more important to look at the result of it. Like, I mean, you know, he's a he's a politician or a, uh, an elected representative. He's he's supposed to be representing these people. So if he's uh, trying to further his political career by representing them by doing favors for them, I mean, that's a job. That's not like something that should be looked at as. If you serve your people, you should get further in your career. It shouldn't be something that's taboo or shady. I agree. But it was often the optimates and just senators in general that would block each other from passing much-needed reform like this because they didn't want one person to get credit and gain clients. It's just a fundamental flaw of of how Romans thought and, and their culture and their system. But the interesting thing is the people that Caesar's passing this this law for are the people of the provinces, most of which can't even vote. So he's not doing it for votes per se in the future. He's literally just doing it because he thinks that this is good governance and this will benefit the republic in the long term and save the people who he is always looking out for. And next, Caesar decides that the first land bill he passed for Pompey to resettle Pompey's veterans didn't go far enough. And he proposes a new additional land bill specifically designed to help the urban poor. So I think I had said before that he had resettled 20,000 of the urban poor. 
that was a little bit of a mix up and, and one of the sources is very confused on how they talk about it and, and mentions it all as almost one bill. When really, it was two different bills. And so the land in Campania, which is in southern Italy, which Caesar had previously exempted from his first bill and said it doesn't need to be included because the treasury gets a lot of their funds from it and including the land in Campania had derailed past land bills. So Caesar said, we're not going to include it so that his land bill for Pompey would not be derailed. Well, now Caesar comes back to this land and some of the best land in Italy. And he says, this new bill is going to deal specifically with the land in Campania. And it's going to be divided up for citizens who have three or more children. And they will be resettled on this extremely rich land. And this would obviously be unpopular to the senators because many of the senators are probably using this public land. They really shouldn't be, but for personal gain. Yeah, I'm wondering, I can't tell if it's like a, at first I was thinking it's a good strategy. Like you're, I mean, why not do that with any bill? Like you, you get rid of all the stuff that you know is going to get caught up in the Senate and then, you know, pass the bill with the, the remaining stuff that you know will pass and then just go ahead and try to pass the, the stuff you took out later on anyway. But but then I was thinking, though, I mean, if you couldn't pass those tougher items when it had when there was other stuff in the in the wall to balance it out, then how are you going to pass it now? And it's just the the more controversial stuff that you yeah. know is going to have resistance uh, from the optimists. So, so yeah, yeah. How does he uh, approach this? It's interesting. I don't know. He had so much resistance in that first land bill, and it's almost like the Senate witnessed the depth of his determination and how far he would go to get these things passed and how much support he had from the people and how aggressive and violent they would get when he was opposed that after seeing all that, they almost just cowered in fear and said, we want no part in trying to stop this man from passing any more bills. <laughs> Even Cato didn't seem to stop these things or didn't try to. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, that's, that's surprising. But yeah, no, I wonder maybe, I guess there's like a threshold that, you know, at first Caesar hadn't passed any like big, big legislation. And then once he got past that, it was sort of, it wasn't as new and like the, the mental uh, reinforcement of, you know, not having any, of Caesar not having precedent of Caesar not having passed any major laws wasn't there anymore. And so it wasn't as like easy for people to convince themselves to put up the energy to fight it. Yeah. And I, and I think initially it's when people who are not accustomed to being ruled over by others and suddenly somebody comes in or in this case, three people and they're telling them what to do and lording themselves over everybody. And the people get up in arms because they don't think that the world works that way. And then the triumvirate basically socks them right in the nose and teaches them, yes, it does work that way. We're in charge. And then the people kind of become the people. I mean, the Senate kind of becomes accustomed to having these three guys in charge and there's less will to fight against them. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I guess they're starting off from a more subservient position and you know, not as proud of a position. Yeah, but either way, this is extremely good for Rome. And, and the sources say that 20,000 citizens come forward, each one of them with three children or more, to be settled down in, in this excellent land in Campania. So rather than senators stealing from the state and farming this land when it's supposed to go towards the treasury, you now have citizens farming the land, producing food for the Republic and giving birth to future soldiers of the empire and not living off the grain dole and not causing riots in the streets of Rome. To me, that way, it definitely, I mean, as far as thinking long-term, like what's the best for the, the empire, not personal political gains. I mean, it definitely seems in which they really should be aligned, but yeah, it definitely seems like a, a valid motive uh, as far as, you know, good governing. Yeah. And that's the thing. Caesar has many critics who call him a tyrant that say he's authoritarian. I don't mean contemporaries at this very time while he's consul. And some of that may be true. He, you know, maybe other senators would have backed down when Bibulus threw his tantrum because they didn't want to look like a tyrant. Caesar, Caesar didn't really care about that. But say what you will about the man. He is excellent at governing an empire and knows exactly what needs to happen and who needs to be helped and how to help them and what to do to help them, and what are the best laws and regulations in order to make that happen. He does it in a way that I don't think anybody else in the Republic could have done. And now that the people have been helped out, both the people of Rome and the people of the provinces, 
Caesar finally goes after the real prize that he wanted more than anything. You'll remember the optimate stuck Caesar with the woods and country paths of Italy as his proconsular command. So typically a pro a consul would turn into a proconsul once their consulship is done and they would go govern one of the provinces, usually one of the more major ones because they've been a consul. And the optimate stuck Caesar and Bibulus with the woods and country paths of Italy as an insult and a joke on them so that Caesar would not have this command that they all knew that he wanted so much. At the time, Caesar swallowed his pride, said, okay, I accept it. But obviously that wasn't going to stand for long. <laughs> and Caesar desires a, a glorious command. And the reason why is he wants to wage war and win glory and honor for himself and his family and to make his name live on in history and to gain power and prestige. And now with the help of Pompey and Crassus, he moves to rearrange this assignment of the provinces. And with their help, he's able to get not one province. Typically, you would get one province for one year. He's able to get not one province, but two provinces assigned to him. What's more, his command would not be for one standard year. It would be for five years instead. That was just mind-boggling in Rome. A command of provinces for five years and not for one of them, but two of them. And he also got the privilege of picking his own legates, which was not usual. And at least one of his legates was even given pro Praetorian Imperium, which essentially meant they had the power of life and death and, and a lot more power over fellow citizens than just a normal legate would. And these two provinces were called Cisalpine Gaul and Illyricum. And by the time this episode comes out, I would have put up a map of Cisalpine Gaul and Illyricum on the Instagram and on Facebook as well. So if you want to know exactly where they are, you can check those out, but I'll kind of describe them for you right now. Cisalpine Gaul included northern Italy into the Alps and maybe just beyond the Alps. Essentially, it's this side of the Alpines, Gaul, the Romans would say. I believe that's what that means because the other province, Transalpine Gaul, is you know on the opposite side of the Alpines or the Alps, as we would say today. And so that province essentially is the one right above Italy. So you have Italy itself, which is not a province, is not governed by anybody, or maybe you'd say the consul governs them, and then Cisalpine Gaul is directly above that. Now, the other province, Illyricum, is essentially the Balkans today, Croatia, Albania, that kind of area, or the Dalmatian coast, you might also call it. So they both connect to each other, and Caesar has command of both of them. And with that comes the command of three legions, which come with the province, and the fact that the provinces were close to Italy made politicking for Caesar much easier than if he had been stationed at, say, somewhere in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, or out in Spain. He's right above Rome, so he's able to send messengers back and forth to politic even while he's away. This is great for Caesar. And what can only be described as Caesar's luck strikes again, and the future governor of Transalpine Gaul on the opposite side of the Alps in southern France dies on his way to his province. And Caesar sees this opportunity and he, and he seizes it. And he gets the Senate to allocate him this third province as well, also for five years. And Transalpine Gaul also has a legion as well. So now in total, he has four legions. He has three provinces, all of them for five years. This is an enormous amount of power. And even better, Transalpine Gaul borders what they called long-haired Gaul, which was the Gaul of the barbarians. And they were always doing raids and having wars with each other. So this offered huge opportunities for Caesar to, to find some excuse for war and to go off adventuring and win himself glory. Yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder like what how things would have played out if he didn't get Transalpine Gaul, but I wonder I mean there's no way he could have known that he's going that the governor of Transalpine Gaul was going to die on his way there, but it just funny to think that it was fate or Caesar's luck, as you put it, that will end up drastically changing uh, Caesar's career. Yeah. I think maybe originally he had looked at Lyricum as the potential because there were plenty of issues over in that way too. But once he saw Transalpine Gaul and snapped that up, he thought that was an even better opportunity to wage war on. Yeah, so maybe he would have found opportunity one way or another. Yeah, I think he would have. But it is interesting, because this is what he becomes famous for, his war in Gaul, and, and originally he may not have had that chance. 
And Bibulus, funny enough, is still left to the fields and pasture lands of Italy. But interestingly, Bibulus never seems to have actually taken up this command and done anything about the bandits in Italy. So it's funny that the Optimates assigned this to him and pretended it was real and, oh, we're not insulting Caesar. This is something that really needs to be done for the Republic. But if Caesar's not doing it, then Bibulus isn't going to bother doing it either. So it kind of, I don't know, to me, it just kind of shows a little bit of how farcical this command was. If Bibulus doesn't even bother once Caesar gets out of it. Yeah. I, you know, what was Bibulus even doing if he wasn't, did he govern some other province or did he just stay in his house? I wonder. Maybe he just we stayed don't in know, Rome. But... And that's the funny thing about all the Optimates. They're all homebodies. They hate leaving Rome. It's very odd. None of them ever want to leave for commands. The Optimates just, they're rooted to Rome. And if they ever leave for commands, it's almost like a punishment. <laughs> and just some additional things that Caesar accomplishes while he's in office. He now recognizes Ptolemy Twelfth as king of Egypt. And Ptolemy was an unpopular ruler of Egypt and had paid a, a massive bribe earlier that year to Pompey and Crassus to try to get him the throne. And apparently he paid 6,000 talents, which was equivalent to 36 million denarii. Whichever way you crack it, this is an enormous amount of money. And to put it in other terms that might help you understand this, 6,000 talents was equivalent to the total annual revenue of Egypt. Yeah, that's that's a figure that just blows my mind. That's like a country paying its whole GDP to another country. It's like, where'd the money even come from? Did he have it saved <laughs> up? I guess, you know, the, the royal uh, treasury or something. It, back yeah. Then, I guess they had, but uh, it's absurd. It's astounding. And obviously this is not, in my opinion, this is not one of Caesar's shiny moments. Like a lot of those things were good, but now he's passing bills to get Pompey and Crassus rich. I mean, it reflects worse on Pompey and Crassus than Caesar, I guess. But still, it's it's not exactly in the best interest of Rome. But I don't know. It's possible this guy was still the best candidate for the throne. Who knows? <laughs> but it's funny. Yeah. This, this guy, Ptolemy, seems to have been unpopular mainly because he raised taxes. But he raised taxes to bribe Romans. And now he needs money to bribe Romans to keep in power. So he's got this vicious cycle going <laughs> where he has to keep on raising taxes to keep on bribing Romans to keep in power. But when he does that, he loses power because people don't like taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely works out for the Romans, at least in the short term. I'm sure the, that in the long term, that's not going to hold up. But but yeah, I mean, him paying all that money to, to Crassus, who has enough money already, it's like... Uh, you know, if some country is paying off Jeff Bezos billions of dollars, like, what's the point of that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. And Pompey at this point is probably richer than Crassus from his command in the East. Okay. Yeah, or it's never certain because there's no Forbes list. And even today, yeah. how, how accurate is Forbes actually? Who knows? But moving on, like I said... The ancient sources can be kind of jumbled on the timeline of Caesar's consulship, but at some point in the consulship, possibly when they were trying to pass the bill ratifying Pompey's Eastern command, Lucullus comes out of his retirement. You'll remember Lucullus was the great general who had waged war in the East for six years in modern-day Turkey to Armenia and had won brilliant victory after brilliant victory against odds that were way against him, and he was way outnumbered many times, and then he had revolt in his troops, mainly or namely because Claudius had stirred them up, because Claudius was mad that Lucullus had not given him a better command. And when that happened, Pompey struck and stole the command from Lucullus. Lucullus then came home to Rome, and lived this luxurious lifestyle and retreated from politics altogether and became famous for building gardens and libraries and holding sumptuous feasts and just living in the lap of luxury. But he comes out of this luxurious retirement now because the only thing that can bring him out of this retirement and bring him back into public life is chances to knock Pompey down a peg because he still hates Pompey for stealing his command like this. And Here's what happens when, when Lucullus gets up and tries to stop this bill from being passed. I have a quote here from Rubicon by Tom Holland. Quote, when hatred for Pompey tempted Lucullus out of retirement one last time, 
he was treated with such dismissive hostility by Caesar that he broke down and begged for mercy on his knees. That so great and haughty a man should have abased himself was shocking to everyone. End quote. And what happens there is essentially Caesar just yells at him and threatens legal action against him for all the things that he's done in the past. And Lucullus just breaks down on his knees and starts crying. And, and people are appalled by this, specifically the optimates, because Lucullus was a chief optimate. He was one of Sola's commanders. And here he is crying, begging for mercy to Caesar. You, you just wonder, like, what is it Caesar said to him and what kind of tone of voice that made this hardened general break down and cry on his knees in, in, in public at, in front of Caesar? Yeah, no, it definitely seems bizarre to me. I mean, I don't know. And, it, you know, especially considering that Caesar's in the opposing party, but maybe he doesn't care as much now that he's kind of retired from the polit- uh, political life. Yeah, it's, it's possible that everything that happened with Pompey and him losing such standing in Rome kind of broke him mentally. But it also may have been a case of early onset dementia because Lucullus shortly after this would begin to start to, in the next few years, begin to kind of lose his mind little by little. And whether that's dementia or Alzheimer's or who knows what, you know, back then they just know that he was losing his mind. And it's interesting though, because one source says that one man who knew Lucullus, so a guy that knew Lucullus at the time says that it had nothing to do with his age or his sickness and claims that one of Lucullus's freedmen, so a guy who was a slave who had been freed, had given Lucullus a sort of love potion. Not really a love potion, but it was supposed to make Lucullus fond of him and predisposed to treat him nicely. <laughs> and that instead of doing that, it just scrambled his brain. <laughs> yeah, that's... I mean, so if this is true, why does this this freed man give him this potion right before... I mean, who knows? Maybe he didn't even know. But right before the speech... If somebody did give him that love potion, it would probably wasn't right before Caesar. I mean, it took him a few years to fully lose his mind, but uh, it could have been something, you know, who knows? Maybe the guy poured mercury in it and didn't know any better. And that could definitely cause brain damage, right? Yeah, for sure. But we're going to move on because we're, we're running a little bit behind here, and I don't want to run over an hour if we can help it. So what Caesar does next, and, and you think that all this legislation happening, how does this man have time for anything outside of work and politics, but somehow he finds a way? Because remember, private life is public life in Rome, and, and there is no separation. And at some time during the year, Caesar still finds moments for romance. And he purchases the single most expensive pearl ever sold in Rome, I believe, for 1.5 million denarii. And he gifts it to his longtime mistress, Servilia. So even amidst, amidst all this chaos and all this horse jockeying and all this legislation he's passing, and I'm sure a lot of it he's got personal hand in writing, he's still finding time to spend lavishly on his mistress. And as you can see, his spending habits have not changed one bit over the years. And in a similar vein to the romance he had with Servilia, Caesar next organizes a flurry of weddings in April and May of that year to cement his political position. These are not love matches. This is for politics. There was a lot of fear among Crassus and Pompey that once, especially, I mean, among Crassus and Caesar, especially Caesar, that once Caesar left for Gaul, Pompey would not be a reliable ally and would switch sides as he had so often done before to so many different people. And Caesar proposed to solve this problem by having his daughter marry Pompey. And Pompey accepts. And Caesar's daughter, first, Caesar was known to be very close to his daughter and to love her very much and be very close with her. And she was known to be extremely charming and a beauty in Rome. Plus, she's a patrician and she's a member of the Julii. So for Pompey, who's kind of an outsider to Rome and, and always wants to be closer to pretend that like he's more and more Roman, this is something that he just can't resist. And Pompey's maybe twice her age at this point, but obviously that didn't stop ancient marriages from happening. And Pompey accepts, despite the vast age difference. And despite the fact that they're very different ages, the new couple, Pompey and and Caesar's daughter, Julia, actually fall deeply in love very shortly after their wedding. And and both sides seem to have been very happy. So in, in this case, age was not, age was just a number. It didn't stop them. And with doing this, Caesar knew that Pompey would not be going anywhere anytime soon. 
because Pompey was in love with his daughter and therefore was far less likely to betray him than he would be otherwise. Plus, from Pompey's perspective, Pompey knew that he had married the one woman in the Republic that Caesar wouldn't steal from him. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, remember, Caesar stole his last wife, so you know this would be the one person he could marry that Caesar would have no interest in. But here's the thing. Julia, Caesar's daughter, was already married. I'm not already married. Was already engaged and was only a few days out from her wedding when this all this happened. So Caesar essentially took – she was a few days out from her wedding. Caesar breaks off the engagement and says, you're going to marry Pompey now. And I guess it all works out for the best. But, of course, her old fiancé now felt snubbed. And so Pompey, to appease this man, then offers his own daughter to this man instead. So then that man's happy. But Pompey's daughter – had been engaged to the dictator Sola's son. So now that engagement needs to be broken off. And now he's mad about something, you know, about the fact that he's been snubbed like this. And so it's this kind of horse shocking of weddings and breaking off engagements and, and remarrying. And it's just a, a lot of craziness, but it's all for politics. And finally, the last wedding that happens is there was very real fears that Caesar would leave and the optimates would get members of their party into office or people sympathetic to their views in office for the consulship of the next year, and then spend the entire year that Caesar's outside of Rome, dismantling every law that he's passed and undoing everything he did in his consulship. And in Caesar's mind, the longer these laws stayed on the books, the harder they would be to repeal and the more legitimate they would seem. The more, the most likely time for the optimists to get rid of them would be right after in, in the very next year. So to prevent this, Caesar now marries the daughter of a man named Lucius Calpurnius Piso, and the daughter's name is Calpurnia. And I'm just going to call him Piso. Piso was a heavy favorite for the consulship in the next year, and now with the backing of the triumvirate behind him, he was a shoe-in for the consulship. And Piso, I mean, he's not really a name you have to remember. He doesn't come into the story that much more, but now Caesar has an ally in the consulship that's going to protect him and going to look out for his interests when he leaves Rome. And all of this horse jockeying through marriages for political alliance, Cato hates every bit of this. And Plutarch says, quote, Cato exclaimed loudly against this and protested with a great deal of warmth that it was intolerable the government should be prostituted by marriages and that they should advance one another to the commands of armies, provinces, and other great posts by means of women, end quote. So Cato's not too high on women. <laughs> Might be a chauvinist. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if they, if they did it, it, you know, it's not, I mean, what they're doing is kind of, you know, not how a government should be run, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who's to say. Yeah, but this is the ancient world, so I think, I mean, this is how things were always done in Rome. It's not unusual. Yeah. And another incident then happens in Rome that, and this has big consequences for future episodes. You remember that Cicero was invited to join the triumvirate, but he refused. And you also remember that Claudius has been beefing with Cicero for some time now. Ever since Cicero testified against Claudius, when Claudius had snuck into the festival of the Bonadia at Caesar's house to try to have an affair with Caesar's wife. And Claudius had claimed as his alibi that he was in some town outside of Rome. And Cicero got up on the stand and said, no, he wasn't. I saw him in Rome that day. I talked to him <laughs> and just blew his alibi to pieces. And Claudius has not forgotten this. And to add to this, Cicero has been cracking jokes at Claudius's expense for a, few, a number of years now just rubbing salt in the wound because Cicero has quite a wit to him and doesn't know when to shut up. And I'll tell you some of those jokes in future episodes that we're going to talk more about this beef between these two. But I mean, just to add fuel to the fire is the fact that they're neighbors. Cicero and Claudius live next door to each other or across the street or something, but they're like right next door to each other. So they see each other all the time. And then just let's not forget Claudius just himself is an absolute psycho. So, of course, this is not good for Cicero. And as a result, Claudius had been angling for some time to run for the tribuneship. And he felt that the tribuneship would give him the best route to revenge on his enemies, meaning Cicero and other people, uh, because it would give him power to demagogue among the people, which he was already great at. And remember, all he cares about is avenging personal slights and perceived personal slights. But the issue with all this is, is that Claudius is a patrician. 
and is literally illegal for patrician to become a tribune. The entire job of a tribune is to protect the plebs from the patricians, the common people from the nobles. <laughs> and so Claudius, to get around this, wants to be adopted by a plebeian to make himself into a pleb. And he even changes his name in preparation for this from Claudius, which was the pr- patrician version, to Clodius, which was the pleb version, because a lot of families would have a pleb branch, and, or not a lot, some would have a pleb branch and a patrician branch. And so the the plebs spelled it C-L-O-D-I-U-S, and the, that was considered the more vulgar, more common way to pronounce it or to spell it. And the patricians spelled it C-L-A-U-D-I-U-S. Well, Claudius changed his name from Claudius to Clodius in preparation of becoming a pleb. <laughs> but this is such an unusual thing in Rome, such an absurd thing to do, because no patrician would ever give up their status. They're so proud of it. And it comes with so many benefits that Claudius needs a consul, namely Caesar, to officiate this adoption. And Caesar thus far has refused. But in early April of Caesar's consulship, Cicero defends his old consular colleague Antonius in court. The details of the case don't really matter. But what happens is at some point during his defense of this man, Cicero lashes out of the triumvirate and calls them out publicly and says how bad they are for the Republic and all these bad things that they're doing and, and really trashes them. And what makes matters worse is it, w- it was probably Caesar and Crassus back in the prosecution. And the man ended up getting, getting prosecuted and was almost certainly guilty of this. But none of that is really what matters. What matters is that Cicero publicly called out the triumvirate. And that very same afternoon, so that happens in the morning, Cicero calls out Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. And that same afternoon, Caesar presides over the ceremony that would allow Claudius, now Clodius, to be adopted as a plebeian and run for the tribuneship. So I think there's no mistaking Caesar's intention there. He said no to Claudius for a long time. Cicero makes that speech. The very same afternoon, Caesar lets their mad dog off the leash. And Pompey is the augur at the ceremony, so he's in on it as well. And Cicero immediately flees the city once he hears this. And of course, Claudius wants to flaunt tradition as much as possible. And the man who adopts him is actually younger than Claudius or Clodius. He's only 20 years old. Claudius is in his 30s. So just wants to make it all the more ridiculous that his new father is only 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to think that Cicero must have been sitting on this information much longer than anyone else, you know, knowing that the triumvirate exists. Because like we, like we said before, Caesar came to Cicero to ask him to join the triumvirate. So he must have had a clue much sooner. So I'm not surprised that he's one of the first ones to start to call them out on it. And it happens to be that it, I don't Who knows to what extent he knew that Caesar and Pompey would sick quote now Clodius on him. But, uh, but yeah, not a good place to be for Cicero. Yeah, not at all. And if you thought that patrician Claudius is bad, wait until you see plebeian Clodius. He is much, much worse, but we're going to leave that story there for now because we have a, a lot to talk about in this episode. And we're going to dedicate an entire episode to the beef between those two because it does affect Caesar. And so pretty much so far, the triumvirate's gotten everything that they want in Rome. It's been a major success. But despite all the success, not all is well with the triumvirate. And throughout the year, less and less senators were attending meetings in protest of Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus's actions. And at one point, a young senator accused Pompey in the forum of being a tyrant and was almost lynched by the mob there. It's just a story that's not a good look for the triumvirate. It makes them look more like autocrats, more like people trying to rule over the republic and silence the people. But I also think that how much control do they really have over the general mobs in the forum? The people loved Pompey. They could just attack the guy because they didn't like what he was saying. You know, I'm not sure that Pompey, Caesar, or Crassus ordered them to do that, but maybe they did. Who knows? So who was almost lynched? It was the young senator or... Yeah, it was a young, undistinguished senator yeah. that everybody said was okay. a pretty dopey guy anyway and had no business doing this, <laughs> but thought he would make a name for himself. And so he almost gets lynched there for doing that. But then another young okay. man takes up the mantle. But this man is far more talented and far more politically connected, and his name is Curio. 
and he's going to become important later in our story. But Curio becomes the chief denouncer of the triumvirate and frequently calls them out in the forum. And the people love it. And they think it's funny to see this. And Curio had been, he had a terrible reputation before this. Him and Mark Anthony, the very same Mark Anthony that would become one of Caesar's generals or lieutenants. They were rumored to be lovers and people like Cicero would even refer to Curio as because his father was named Curio as well. So they would call him Curio's little daughter <laughs> rather than a son. They would call him Curio's little daughter. And it was rumored that him and Mark Anthony were lovers and that Mark Anthony, who was known to be a big, tough guy with bulging muscles, wore a dress for Curio for, I guess, I don't know, Curio liked it. So Anthony with his big muscles would put on a dress for Curio. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of this is exaggerated, but all the sources say it was said enough in Rome and believed by enough people that there must have been something to it. And yeah. Curio's father even banned Mark Anthony from their house at one point. <laughs> so even his father believed something about it. Wow. But Despite that bad reputation, Curio starts calling out the triumvirate, and now all the august senators, all the optimates are cheering him wherever he goes and acting like he's this distinguished person in the Republic, and Curio's loving this. And at one point, Pompey attends some great games, and the crowd hisses at Pompey, their version of booing. So this is the triumvirate's you know, respect by the people or reputation is going downhill quickly. And later at a play, an actor emphasizes the line, you are great through our misery. And the people in the crowd knew exactly who he was talking about. And the crowd goes wild and they cheer him. And because they see this as an attack on Pompey, we're told, by some of the ancient sources. And at that same play, the crowd is silent when Caesar enters. You know, usually they would cheer when somebody big like Caesar enters. He's the consul that year, but they're just silent, which is not a good greeting for him. And when Curio enters directly after Caesar, the crowd goes wild, absolutely bananas. So, you know, they may have been doing things for the people, but somehow the Roman crowd's very fickle and has turned on them. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, the the legislation that, or at least much of it, that Caesar's passing is, you know, land reform, reducing the, I mean, this is in effect the Italian or Roman citizens, but reducing the taxes kept in the provinces. I mean, at least, you know, it's not the people right there in Rome, but it's people in general. I don't know if they care about that or not, but, but yeah, you would think that I wonder why they didn't see him as a a champion of the people rather, I guess, I mean, because of the way that he did it. Yeah. I think that what's happening here is the general people I'm guessing still love Caesar and are still in favor of all these things pass. Cause think about who goes to these plays who goes yeah. to the theater? It's the wealthier aristocrats, right? So when Pompey's getting hissed at and Caesar, they're silent for and Curio gets cheered. These are probably all the elites of the society. These are not your normal people billing them. And of course, they knew that they had pissed the senators off. So that's not surprising. But it's just the Senate's becoming more and more united and hostile against the three of them. Whereas before they had been meek and quiet. And all this is happening while Bibulus still hold up writing nasty pamphlets about Caesar and Pompey on the regular, calling Caesar the queen of Bithynia again and writing all sorts of nasty stories about him and Pompey and posting them in the forum. And the people think that this is funny. And Caesar just it kind of ignores all this behavior as if Bibulus is beneath him. And Caesar can take that kind of abuse and, and be okay with it because he just, you know, he's got a lot of confidence, but Pompey's more insecure and Pompey doesn't like being made fun of like this. So Pompey goes and makes a speech in the forum defending himself. And Cicero says it just made him look pathetic. And Bibulus' response to the speech was just to write even more pamphlets about Pompey. So I want to end with a quote today. Oh, Brendan, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, I mean, it basically just sounds like he got, you know, an arise out of Pompey then. So that was just more encouragement for him to do it more, Bibulus. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But we're running over our hour, so I'm going to end today. This is you know, where we had an end anyway planned. But I'm going to end today with a quote. And this is from Tom Holland's Rubicon. And I have many quotes from him because his writing style lends well to, to quotes. He says, quote, Although Crassus, macavity-like as ever, evaded much of the abuse, Caesar and Pompey both grew steadily more reviled. They kept their grip on the reins of power, 
but that for a Roman aristocrat was never enough. He also had to be respected, honored, loved, end quote. And that's where we're going to end it today. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and to follow us on Twitter and to rate us on the podcast store and send the podcast to people you know who like history and would enjoy something like this. And feel free to reach out to us at our email, themarchofhistory at gmail.com. That's themarchofhistory at gmail.com. And our Instagram is at themarchofhistory. Twitter is at march underscore history. And feel free to reach out to us. We want to interact with our audience. We want to hear from you guys. And that's it. Until next time on the March of History. Until next time. See you then. See you then.